Hey, welcome to night school. Not going to do silly skits here. Not today. I almost thought about deleting that thing from last night. I listened back to it and I was just like, oh boy. <laughs> Why did I do this? <laughs> what am I, a theater kid? I'm just a theater kid doing some stupid whispering demon improv. Who do I think I am? You know, Napoleon Hill outwitting the devil. But I listened back to that, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is probably what kids today call cringe. But, you know, my religion is one of humiliation, self-humiliation. And you can't have humility without humiliation, is my motto. So it's good to embarrass yourself. It's good to humiliate yourself now and again. And you know what? I don't know that there's really much out there right now that doesn't seem humiliating in some way. And so that sort of levels the playing field. If everything's humiliating, you know, everything kind of has an equal chance, you know, to rise above that, I guess. But I, I'm certainly not rising above that. A real low point in the show's history. <laughs> a, re <you, laughs> a real low point. I just hope someone doesn't hear it and be like, oh, he's doing a heavy metal joke. He's doing a, he's doing like a death black metal voice joke. Because I don't do that. I'm not one of these people who makes fun of uh, metal with like, oh, it, it, isn't it funny if you, do, you know. I, I just don't do that. You know, when metalheads make fun of metal, it reminds me of white people who make fun of white things to try to pander, to, to make themselves seem self-aware or cool. Like when white people are like, oh, you know, I'm white, but we don't even have a culture. We just got mayonnaise and jello molds and we can't dance. It's like you're not even being original. You're not even coming up with something original. I mean, there's plenty of jokes a white person could make about their background, about their own people. But it's like you're stooping to the level of, uh, you know, outsider humor, like the sort of jokes an outsider would make. And that's how I feel about when people who are into metal you know, pander to outsiders by making the most obvious jokes that people have been making. It makes me think of uh, years back when I first moved to Olympia. This is around 2005, I guess. There was a guy who was called the Black Metal Comedian. And he used to, I guess, do, he used to open at local shows. And he was probably an actual metalhead. Like, he had long hair and he was old. You know, he was probably in his 40s already by then. And he had glasses and he would wear corpse paint and do just really bad stand-up comedy, just kind of making light of black metal or whatever. And it's, you know, it's just, it's not that I take that stuff too seriously. The problem is just that it's, I've heard those same jokes going back to day one of getting into the music. Like those same, the same exact style of humor about that stuff. And it's basically there to communicate to people like, oh, I don't take this stuff too seriously. And isn't, isn't it ridiculous? And it's like, what's funny about that too is like everybody I've ever known who actually likes underground metal does have a sense of humor about it, but it comes from the inside. It's, it's based on something weird. It's based on something that, you know, only you would notice if you were interested in it. It's not the kind of thing that an outsider makes if they're like, oh, yeah, you know, isn't it kind of funny that they do this thing with their hands and, and they, oh, they're so serious. You know, it reminds me, a girl tried to make me watch that Death Clock show years ago. 
And it was just, just a bad idea. You know, Metalocalypse is the name. She tried to make me watch that. And I know it's, once again, it's it's made by a metal guy or a guy who actually likes metal. But she tried to make me watch that, and I don't even remember what I saw. I couldn't even tell you what was on the screen at any point in this episode I watched. But I didn't laugh at anything. I didn't find it entertaining. And it was just awkward. It was just this awkward hour, half hour, however long that show is. And it's like, it's not that I take metal that seriously that I can't find the humor in it. It's that this isn't funny, and this style of humor has been done so often for so long that there's just no way I can pretend to like this. Trust me, I'm very self-aware about my own interests. But anyway, I just, after I did that silly little skit last night, I was like, oh, someone's going to think this is like some metal voice or something, which I would never do. It was a whispering demon voice. It was some stupid elder god. Who cares? Who cares? You're thinking way more about this than anybody else ever would. I was thinking about Columbine. The Columbine shooting. Because as I've said before, I have very little interest in mass shootings, school shootings, or anything like that. Despite all the years I spent being interested in serial killers and true crime, I've never had a significant interest in mass shootings and school shootings. It's just a very different type of crime. It's very hot-blooded. Even though it's premeditated, it's like this hot-blooded outburst. It's this anger. It's not pathological. It's not cold-blooded. I find cold-blooded crime far more interesting And the motivations, too. You know, the motivations are typically the same. You know, whereas with serial killers, it's like you're always left wondering what the actual motivation is beyond bloodlust or, you know, libido, like uh, predatory libido. But you don't really ever get to the bottom of it. You don't really ever understand, like, where that pathology is comes from and people never really get to the bottom of the whole shooter thing either but you immediately recognize it as very hot-blooded and there's nothing particularly interesting about the people even if they're adults you know because it's not just that they're kids and are therefore immature and underdeveloped even when it's an adult who does a mass shooting, it's like there's nothing that interesting about them. Columbine was interesting, though. I know a little bit more about that because who doesn't? I know a little bit more about that because who doesn't? Now, that was interesting because it was, I mean, I'm sure the whole 24-hour news cycle was already a thing then. Obviously, cable news was already around, but that was the, one of the first times that I remember in my life. I think I was 13 years old when Columbine happened. But that was one of the first times in my life that I remember that 24-hour news cycle, leave no stone unturned, we're going to mention everything. And, and as a result, so much trivia from that. Like, I've never read a Columbine book. I've never read a book about Columbine. But so much trivia is burned into my brain. Like, yeah, I've read some things online here and there over the years. I've read some things. It's not that I don't find it interesting at all. I, do, I actually find Columbine to be the most interesting of all those events, all those shootings over the years, it kind of got the ball rolling. 
you know, yeah, there were shootings before that, but it kind of got the ball rolling on our, it basically shaped our modern impression of what a mass killing is, which is why it's interesting. But, you know, that start of the 24-hour news cycle where it's like there's so much trivia that was just burned into my brain. You know, where even just a place like Littleton, Colorado, like just the locations there, the way they talked about those locations, it's almost mythological. Where like they talk about where the kids lived and worked and where they went. Like I even remember the name of the county. They're like the Jefferson County Sheriff. The Jeffco, they called it Jeffco. Why do I remember that? Why do I know that? Jeffco. But it's because you heard that like 50 million times for a year. Every time they talked about that and they talked about it a lot. But I've noticed that with other people as well, where other people kind of have this mythological impression of Columbine as well. And there are a lot of people who are obsessed with it. To this day, there's a lot of people who are completely obsessed with it. Obviously, the younger outcast type kids, and every time there's a newer school shooting, they're always like, I'm doing this for Eric and Dylan. I'm just finishing what Eric and Dylan started. Like, they see themselves as part of a lineage that was started by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, which is just, that's far beyond me. You know, the idea that a kid would read about them and identify with them and want to be, like, part of what they started is very foreign to me. But, uh... And these are kids, too, weren't even alive. You know, nowadays, it's like kids will do a, a school shooting. There are at least a couple of them already this year. And kids will do a mass shooting. And then they're like, I, I, to them, it's like even more mythological than it is to everybody who was alive then. Because these kids have grown up reading about Columbine on Wikipedia. They weren't even around then. But it's funny because my friend Ben, in some ways, he kind of helped motivate me to start doing this show many years ago because he was working on a project and he was interviewing some friends for it, just wanting to, I don't even remember what he wanted to know because he came over to my house. It was actually on Christmas Eve, so it was this time of year. He came over to my house on Christmas Eve. It was probably 2012, 2011, maybe around there. And he came over to my house and I was just, I was... You know, I was never a day drinker. Even when I was drinking a lot, I was never a day drinker. I always waited until 7, 8 o'clock at night to start drinking. But on this particular Christmas Eve, I started day drinking whiskey. And he was interviewing me, and I was already drunk, and I was fairly belligerent. Not that I was a belligerent drunk, but who cares. Um, I was just He was asking me questions, and he was kind of trying to gear it toward what he wanted to know for this project that he was doing about the Pacific Northwest. But I just ended up going off about all kinds of things, like shutting down his questions and just going off about whatever I wanted. But I remember one thing because I had a recording. He gave me a recording of the interview. And in it, I was like, yeah, this was pre-Columbine, pre-9-11, pre-Columbine, pre-9-11. And he just started cracking up when I said that. But that really is, you know, that was, there was a separation there. It's like Columbine, 1999, 9-11, 
2001. Those were the two definitive events. Those were the two definitive world events of being a teenager in America at that time. Maybe just being an American in general. But I just remember being like pre-Columbine, pre-9-11. But, um, and, I, and, and during that interview, he was like, you should start doing the Eric Stonefelt show. Just do a show. And I think he was imagining like a talk show, like Jimmy Fallon or something. But in some way, like, I, you know, I think I've always wanted to do some sort of radio show. But I think he did kind of give me a little, a little push in his own way. Just saying that, offering that pre-Columbine, pre-9-11 perspective. But anyway, so a kid who's born after that, you know, they're just reading about that on Wikipedia and maybe they feel outcasted. I'm, I'm not going to psychoanalyze what kids feel today. But that's interesting to me that kids like identify with them and they're essentially fictional figures. They might as well be fictional. And I've noticed even with people who were older who were alive then, because what I found kind of accidentally is that there's a huge following of women who are obsessed with Columbine. Because you can imagine like the young men, the teenage boys who read about that and have their own hot-blooded anger at their peers, hate their lives, whatever they're feeling, their own misery. But what's interesting is there's women who are adults who are obsessed with Columbine. And I found that out a while back, many years ago, actually, where somebody had come out with a Columbine video game. They made their own Columbine RPG, and it was controversial. Like, the family spoke out about it. It was just something I think you could download online. And, you know, being a big fan of RPGs, I was like, huh? Because they made an RPG that was kind of designed to look like an old Super Nintendo RPG, but you're playing as the Columbine Killers on their last couple days, I guess, leading up to or during the shooting. And it was very controversial because the guy who made it had been bullied. So it's like a part of him kind of identified with it, but he, he also claimed he was just making an artistic statement, which he should be allowed to do. I believe in someone's right to express themselves by making a Columbine RPG if they want. I'm not going to play it, but you know, someone can do that. But I remember reading about that and then coming across like that there was this entire community of predominantly women who were, some of them are in love with the boys. Like some of them, you know, and you can kind of get where that's, it's not far off from the sort of woman who writes love letters to a serial killer in prison who marries Richard Ramirez in prison. You know, we know that story. Sandra London having relationships with two different serial killers who were serving life sentences. You know, that's unbelievable. I mean, I think she has the world record, right? She was engaged to two different serial killers. But uh, so that's a, a pretty common idea that women, for whatever reason, are drawn to these horrible men who are serving life sentences. So the fact that women would feel that way about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, and I found out too, they have a favorite. Like some of these women have a favorite, like one of them will be more into Eric Harris or more into Dylan Klebold. And uh, they, 
But what's interesting about that, that's not a guy who's serving life in prison who you're exchanging love letters with. It's a dead teenager from 15, 20 years ago. It's a teenager who killed a bunch of people and then committed suicide many years ago. So you really are just in love with a fictional character. But at that time, when I found out about this whole community of women, and I don't know if it's still around. I think it probably is. Because I've seen some things here here and there that indicate to me there's still kind of something like that. You know, because mythology doesn't die. Once something like that becomes mythologized... It takes quite a bit for it to die, and it seems like there are still people who are fairly preoccupied with it. I mean, I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it. I'm in love with Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. No. But it's just crazy to me to think, like, wow, like, they're in love with a dead teenager who killed a bunch of people and then killed himself twenty over 20 years ago now. How many people can say that? But, you know, around that time that I found out about this, this whole phenomenon, I remember reading about this woman and she was an adult, probably in her 20s. We're talking about millennial people who were alive at the time. But there was a woman who went to Littleton. And at the time, Eric Harris's childhood home was for sale and it was empty. So she pretended to be somebody who was interested in buying it so that a realtor would show her the house. And I think she wore a trench coat. If I remember right, the story was that if she wasn't wearing a trench coat while she toured the house, she wore a trench coat normally. There was definitely something involving her wearing a trench coat. But she toured the house that was for sale. And, you know, his family hadn't lived there for a long period of time. I think other families had lived there since then. But she ended up stealing like a bathroom hand towel just to have some part of the house. It came out that she had stolen a bathroom hand towel while this real estate agent was showing her the house. And it's so strange because it's like it didn't even belong to him. That hand towel didn't even belong to his parents. But the draw was so powerful for her that she wanted to have some small piece that she could somehow connect. Like that realtor probably bought, you know, my mom was a real estate agent. If she was selling an empty house, she would just like put, you know, bathroom towels in there herself. You know, she had little things that she would buy to make the house, you know, more attractive or functional, whatever that she was trying to sell. So it's like the realtor probably bought those hand towels and put them in the empty house. But this young woman toured it and stole one of them just so that she could feel some connection. Even though it really had no connection at all. It's not like Eric Harris washed his hands with that hand towel. And even even if he had, I mean, that'd be just as bizarre. But it shows you that there's almost, a, you know, a religious fervor to this. That somebody would feel that way. And then also going to Littleton. And I mean, I actually know a woman who went to Littleton who's very interested in, you know, she's not, she's not like that. Um, but she, last time I talked to her, it was a couple, she told me a couple years ago, I think it was, she went to Littleton and just drove around and checked out some of the sites just because she's been very interested in researching it. I don't think she has some, she's not interested in it like that. But it was enough of a draw to where she wanted to go see the town. And I can understand that in my own way. Where it's like, even though this is just a normal suburban town, we all know the name of it. 
We heard the news talking about it 24-7. It doesn't seem entirely real. It does seem a little bit surreal. The fact that I even know the name of the county, and I'm not even particularly interested in it. So you can see where somebody who is more interested in it, there's going to be that much more of an attraction. And I think we all have that feeling, too. I, like, I mean, I think about when I was in ninth grade, a classmate's older brother hanged himself in the woods next to the school. He was a senior in high school. I didn't know him, but I, he was always around. You know, he was a few years older and very charismatic, popular guy. You know, I, I knew his sister my entire life. And he was just one of those guys where you knew his name. He was always around. He was very outgoing and charismatic. But I think there was a breakup or something, and he ended up hanging himself in the woods by the school that I was going to. And it was very surreal because nothing like that. I mean, I'd heard a, a couple other people, like one of my sister's friends in high school committed suicide. But nobody that I really knew had done that. And so I was very interested in like where it happened. And so was so were a lot of people. Like some kids I knew went there soon after it happened. They had gone there to see it. And so I think it was probably like a week or two, maybe a couple of weeks after it happened. You know, and I had a lot of sympathy for his sister, you know, it really devastated that family. It wasn't it wasn't like I was detached from it where it was just this clinical thing. It was really a terrible thing to happen in a in a very small community. But my best friend and I, we were just like, we. one day we, I, I just went over to his house and we were like, do you want to go there? And so we ended up walking there and it's kind of a stand by me thing. I mean, it's kind of what the plot of stand by me is where they hear about the kid. I don't remember if they already know he's dead, but he went missing. He ended up being hit by a train and they didn't find his body. I don't remember in stand by me if they already know he's dead or if they're just looking for the missing boy. But either way, they come across his dead body. And it's sort of a similar idea where the boys set off on this mission, this morbid mission. And then in Stand By Me, when they come across the body, when they find the kid's body, it's not like what he thought it was going to be. It's not cinematic to him. Even though we're watching the movie and it's cinematic to us, the boys come across this body and all of a sudden the narrator kicks in talking about how he was feeling. The idea that the story is trying to convey is that the reality of seeing the kid's body was not cinematic or at all. You know, so it's the kid Gordy is shocked by it because he's just like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't what I thought a dead body was going to be like. So I understand that motivation to kind of see a, a sight to go to a place maybe where something happened. And my buddy Nick and I, after this classmate's brother killed himself in the woods, one day we were just like, let's go see the tree. Let's go to the spot. And so we did. And it was, a, we knew the woods very well where it happened, but it was in this kind of gully where kids partied. Like it was a spot where he had partied, the guy who committed suicide. It was where he and his friends had partied a lot. And then a couple of years later, that's where we partied. He chose that spot because it was familiar to him. And we didn't go there. Like we didn't smoke weed there in high school because a guy killed himself there. We did it because it was this secluded spot in the woods where kids had partied for generations. But it was kind of weird because that tree was there and there was a, a cross on it. 
But that first day that we went there, like we kind of had that stand by me sort of motivation where it's like, let's go see it. And we did. And you know what? It's once again, it's not cinematic. There's just a tree in the woods. And it's hard to picture what happened there. Because like they had his, he wore one of those hemp necklaces that was popular around that time. And so they, they had tied the hemp necklace around the tree, like up on one of the branches. And we thought it was part of the rope at first, because that's what it looked like. It looked, it was, you know, like hemp rope. And we were like, is that still part of the rope up there? But it, it was his hemp necklace they had put up there as kind of a memorial. But I remember like we got, we went up and investigated the tree because it was hard to visualize. It was hard to understand. And we kind of, you know, thought like detectives in a way where we're like, where do you think that he, did he like swing off? You know, it's, it's morbid. But it's like, we, we thought like, you know, did, did he like get up on the embankment and swing off? Where do you think he tied the rope? You know, that kind of thing. Cause it was just like nothing else. Like we had never seen something like that. We had never come across a tree where somebody we knew had hung himself or a classmate's brother had hanged himself. So I feel like people going to Littleton, it's not that far off from that. It's less personal, but it's still these things kind of take on a mythological property and they're hard to comprehend. And it's surreal and cinematic in your mind. But when you go to a place like that where something happened, I mean, I can think of one place where something very strange and dark and deadly happened that I went to and it did feel fucked up. It did feel utterly surreal. And I'm actually, I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not playing a game here, but I'm actually not even going to talk about it because it was very fucking weird. The feeling was really unlike anything I've ever felt. And the people I was with felt the same way. So I have felt that once where it did feel kind of otherworldly to be at a place where something very strange and dark had happened. But a lot of times when you go to places like that, you're just like, this is just a place. And so I don't know what people feel when they go to Columbine, when they go to Littleton, but the fact that people are making that pilgrimage, that I know somebody who did that. And you have other people, too, who are part of these online communities who feel the need to go there as well. I guess just to kind of understand it. I don't, I'm not even sure. I, wouldn't, I don't even know that they know. But I think a part of it is kind of interacting with this real-life mythology. But, you know, getting to that idea of things being cinematic... I mean, a good example of that is just, like, people's idea of what a fight is like. Like, people have this idea that a fight is like what you see in the movies, when the reality of a fight, it's far more subtle. Like, the blows are far more subtle. The sounds are different than you would expect them to be. The movements, it's a lot quicker, and it's a lot more subtle, if that makes any sense. And I saw a video a couple nights ago where they were looking for information about a guy who kidnapped a woman. And she had one of those door cams. You know, one of those, like, doorbell cameras that films your porch. And she was coming home late at night, and, like, as she was unlocking her door, this man ran up and just started wailing on her, just started beating her. And then he just dragged her off and kidnapped her, and nobody knows who he was. Maybe they've found more information since then, but as of a couple nights ago, 
this was making its rounds because people were trying to identify the uh, the attacker, the kidnapper. But what got me about it is how uncinematic it was. And honestly, it was really fucked up. It was re- extremely disturbing video because like she's unlocking her door and you can imagine doing that. You know, you can imagine just like unlocking your front door or just doing something mundane. And he he comes. What got me about it is he comes running at her. He just emerges from the darkness and he's running so fast. And like the way he's beating her up, it's not like a movie. It's like he comes, like, if, if you were to tell a story and you were to be like, oh, it's going to be a, a movie scene where a woman's unlocking her door and a man kidnaps her, a man attacks and kidnaps her, you would imagine this guy kind of emerging from the shadows more slowly, doing some sort of dramatic motion with his arms, like wrapping her up or striking her very dramatically. Maybe you're even imagining the different angles that the camera takes. But this was just one angle from the porch. And yeah, it was it was completely uncinematic. He just he comes running so freaking fast at her. Which of course somebody would if they're doing that. And then he just starts beating her up and you can't even tell what's going on. And then he drags her off. Like in a movie you'd expect him to like wrap her up in a bear hug and hoist her up and like walk off into the shadows with her. But no, the whole thing, it's very chaotic. It's very sloppy. It's very fast. You can't even tell what's going on entirely. You can just tell that this guy's attacking her. And, you know, it's, it's the same for fights. Like if you watch videos of fights, it's not like guys doing big dramatic blows. Like sometimes you can't even tell when a guy's hitting a guy. It's all very quick and it, there's a subtlety to it. And I think that's what people imagine, too. Like, people who imagine the Columbine shooting. Like, people who are obsessed with Columbine. I have to imagine that, like, they envision what was going on that day almost through the lens of a movie camera. And I think that's just what we do. You know, I think that's just kind of how we envision things. But it's not the reality. Even serial killers. Like, when you read about Ted Bundy... You imagine him doing something and you imagine it like very slow and dramatic so that you can see every little movement and it's picturesque, horrible but picturesque, when the reality is what Ted Bundy did is probably not unlike that video I saw the other night of somebody just running at a woman like at extreme speed before she can even react and just wailing on her and there's just it's like this eruption of chaos You have to imagine some of these serial killers, it was very similar, even though we want to, maybe not want to, but just naturally kind of envision it almost like it's in slow motion. The reality is somebody who's attacking somebody and wants to be successful at it is going to do it at full speed. They're going to use the element of surprise. It's not choreographed. It's not orchestrated. It's fast and it's brutal. And so I think people are missing that. You know, because people do sort of see the world, at least the world they're not experiencing, as if it's a movie. As if it's going to feel entirely surreal. But sometimes when something like that is happening, it's actually less surreal than you would think. It's very mechanical. And sometimes that's how it can feel to go to a place where something bad has happened. I mean, there's a trail right by my house, like right by my house, 
where years ago I was driving and I saw like a bunch of crime scene. It was taped off. The trail was taped off. There was a, a forensics van, police. And I was like, huh, I wonder what happened there. Because there's homeless camps down there, at least, or at least there used to be. And it came out that there was like this turf war or something where three younger homeless guys killed two older homeless guys. They murdered them and then set their camp on fire. And I haven't gone back there since because I wasn't sure if camps are still down there. And it's just, it's eerie. But in the last year, I took a walk down there and I was just trying to kind of visualize that that happened there. But it's like, it doesn't feel any different. You walk down there. I don't know exactly where the, the murders took place, but it's weird to think that that happened there. But once again, you think about those three guys overpowering these two older guys and then setting the camp on fire. You imagine it as if it's a movie when the reality is different than that. So I think like, you know, we tend to mythologize these events. We tend to think of these horrific events and we see them as if they're mythological and they become mythological in our minds. The people involved become mythological. You know, something that's interesting about these Columbine I guess communities you could call them, like online communities, is that people have memorized the names of like every single person at that school. They've memorized the names of like the killer's friends of friends. They they know the names of the bullies, which it turns out the Columbine guys were bullies too. You know, that's a whole other angle is that like, oh, because that... It, just to go off on a tangent, you know, Columbine, it brought the bullying conversation front and center. That was already picking up steam in our culture, but it definitely escalated that conversation where people were like, did bullying cause this? They seem to have had a problem with the Jacks. The Jacks? The Jacks. But, uh, you know, it really brought that conversation front and center where it's like, what do we do about bullying? And since then, we've seen just these very strict policies about bullying. But deeper investigation into Columbine revealed that while they were bullied, they were also bullies themselves. They bullied younger kids. They repeatedly threatened to kill one of their friends, which plays into a point I've made on here, which is I didn't see a lot of bullying between different groups. I didn't see very many outcasts and kids like that. There were outcasts. There were people who didn't have any friends. There were kind of, you know, mall goths who hung out in a little corner by themselves and people didn't really like them. And, you know, that existed in my school. But it wasn't the popular kids or the jocks who ever bullied those guys. They didn't care. The, peop the so-called popular crowd and the jocks and everything, they kind of just acted like those people didn't exist. Like, they weren't cruel to them that I ever saw. There was a lot more so-called bullying within a group of friends. Like, speak, like, thinking of my group of friends, it seemed like every week somebody else was the whipping boy. Like, it was almost like a rotating cast. And, like, in some groups of friends, I know there would be one person who would get the brunt of things. But I know with my group of friends, we, we could be very mean to each other. And sometimes everybody would gang up on one person, but the next week it would shift to somebody else. And there wasn't really any rhyme or reason. You know, you just think like teenagers are growing, they're insecure, they don't really have a very strong sense of identity. 
They know this is all temporary. Most of them are virgins. They're experiencing like unrequited love for the first time. You know, there's so much going on with kids. And uh, I even found that though, you know, because I was friends with athletes and stuff through football. And it was the same thing with them. I found that athletes could be very mean within their circle of friends. But it wasn't that common for them to be mean to people who were outsiders to their group. And I've heard stories, and I'm not saying that's an absolute rule. I know that there are people who pick on weaklings and nerds and people who don't have friends. And I mean, there's a very cruel form of bullying that is real. Where there's kids who live miserable lives and they dread going to school. That happens. I think that may have been more common in decades past. I don't know. I can't speak for it. I can only speak for my experience, which was that most of the so-called bullying happened within a group of friends. And kids in general were kind of at war with each other. Everybody was kind of testing the limits and throwing barbs at each other. There was a lot of lashing out, but then you in turn would be lashed out at too. There was a give and a take and a push and a pull to all of it. That was my experience. Like I could be mean to people, but my friends were mean back. Sometimes they would start it, sometimes I would start it, but we'd get over it. And I think that was a natural and necessary process. And so I think some of this anti-bullying stuff has really eliminated a process that's quite helpful. You know, you can say that it helps you develop thicker skin. I think it just helps you learn how to deal with things and communicate more effectively too. It makes you less sensitive to trivial nonsense. And so when you cut out that entire process, I think you're actually hurting kids. And, uh, you know, what, what came out about Columbine was not that they were, yeah, they weren't popular. They were outcasts for sure. I don't think anybody disagrees about that. But it came out that, like, they, they were constantly threatening one of their good friends who was a fellow nerd with death. Like, they were threatening to kill him all the time. And he was their friend. Like some of their journals and some of the stuff that came out, they were constantly going after freshmen and younger kids. They were constantly antagonistic. And I had an experience with a kid when I was in junior high. I think I was in ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade. There was a kid who came to our school and he didn't have a single friend. He was American born. I think his family was Iranian. But he, didn't, he never had a single friend all through school. And he's the sort of kid where you could imagine, like if you heard there was a shooter that like on a given day and then you found out it was him, you know, it's a cliche, but he, he was the guy where you wouldn't be surprised. Because it's not only that he didn't have friends, cause, and he wasn't really picked on, but he was extremely antagonistic and opinionated and obnoxious. And he got in trouble for sexually harassing a girl shortly after he arrived, like he made some sort of inappropriate comment to a girl. And what I remember about him is I rode the bus with him one year, just the city bus, you know, before I got my license, people had to ride the city bus. And every single day on the bus, he would get in this argument because he was an atheist, of course. And so he would get in these long, drawn-out arguments with this Bible-thumping Christian kid, this really wholesome Christian kid who rode the bus. 
and they would get in this very long drawn out and you know honestly and it wasn't like mean-spirited like they weren't hating on each other it was this like argument of logic and philosophy but it was just irritating because it would go on every single day and the religious kid would just be like well that's faith i just have faith well i believe it because the bible says it and then the kid I'm talking about would just always be like, but that's, there's no logic to it. Yeah, you know, he would just go on that tangent, like Richard Dawkins says. I don't know if people were talking about Richard Dawkins at the time, but that sort of guy. But he was the sort of kid where he, he just never had a single friend. And he wasn't into anything either. Like he was very opinionated, but he wasn't interested in music you know, because at least with some of these kids like Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold, like even though they had this, they were interested in like kind of mainstream industrial rock, that kind of thing. But this kid that I went to school with, he was never into anything. It's like he had no interests. He was very antagonistic. He was always trying to provoke people. And I got in a physical fight with him once because I had a class with him and our teacher was gone that day, like they got sick and they had to go home. So we had to go to this other classroom where there was a substitute teacher. And, you know, we're in a completely different classroom. The desks are arranged differently. So I just sat down wherever. And this kid that I'm talking about, he came in and I guess he assumed that we would have the same seating order. We would have like the same seating arrangements as our normal class. But it's a different room, a different teacher, different, de- just who cares? Or just sit where you're going to sit. And he comes over to me and he's like, that's my seat. And I was like, you know, we're in a different room. Who cares? Like we're just sitting wherever. And he goes, get out of my seat. That's my seat. And I'm like, I'm not getting out of this seat. And he just grabs my coat and he just pulls me up and we start grappling. And he's like trying to pull my jacket over my head. You know, he forced me to my feet with my jacket. And so he's like holding my jacket over my head, trying to pull it up over my head. And we're kind of grappling. You know, I'm trying to like grab his arms and he's trying to grab my arms and while he's grabbing my jacket. And so I'm just like, well, my legs are free. So I just start kicking him in the stomach. Just full on kicking him. And the substitute teacher sees it, and she just, she lost it. She was like, oh, my God, you're fighting. Oh, my God, you're fighting. You know, she flipped out. She's like, get out, go to the office, go to the office. And so we got suspended. We got in-school suspension where they made us go to a little room for a few days. Basically a glorified closet that I didn't even know existed. Like, you know how you're in school and you'll see random doors You have no idea. You assume it's a janitor's closet. You don't know what it goes to. It was one of those doors, but it turns out there was this little room with like a photocopier and all these desks that had like, you know, a few desks and they were like solitary confinement desks where it was just like a normal desk, but wood had been built on the sides and the top. So it was completely enclosed so that you couldn't see anybody else. And I go in and it's all like wiggers. There's this black kid that I knew who had like just piercing blue eyes that were really freaky. And for some reason, he thought my name was Steve. And I walk into the suspension room and he's like, oh, Steve. And I didn't even correct him. I'm just like, I'm going to be, I'm in, I'm suspended. I'm just going to be Steve now. (laughs) It's my dad's name. But uh, the other kid was in there with me too. The kid who I kicked, the kid who tried to, the kid who, you know, he assaulted me. 
oh my God, he assaulted me. So I kicked him. But uh, we were both in there together with these like, with just like wiggers, just the bad kids. It truly was the bad kids. And we all had these little desks and we just had to be in there all day. And the lady who supervised it was actually really nice. She kind of let us joke around a little bit, even though we weren't supposed to. And then like once a day, she would take us out almost like a chain gang. And we would go over to the pop machines and the candy machines and with her own money, amazingly, considering we're suspended. She would buy us sodas and candy with her own money, which was amazing. I guess just for being good, bad kids. We're good, bad kids. But yeah, this kid, like he was that type of kid where he was just, he was so antagonistic. Like starting, he started a fight with me. But you know what's funny about that is I, I would see him for years to come. And he, his life continued kind of as it was, where it was like he never had any friends. Nobody liked him. Nobody was cruel. Like nobody picked on him. But it was like he made his own bed. He, you know, the reason why he didn't have friends is because he was seriously one of the most obnoxious people and he would start shit with you and you could be like, oh, it's so sad. He doesn't have any friends and he's an outcast, but it's like, he's always causing problems and he's very self-righteous. So it's like sometimes that sometimes people will themselves into that position and it wouldn't have surprised me. Like he's the type of kid where you were like, oh, the school got shot up. Who was it? Oh, it was him. And you'd be like, oh, he would have been one of my top five picks. But what's funny about that is ever since our fight, if we would pass each other in the halls, we would kind of nod to each other. It was almost like, yeah, we got in a fight. We got suspended. But you know what? It kind of, it established maybe a level of respect. You know, like we're both willing to, I mean, because I didn't get in fights. I didn't go around school getting in fights. You kidding me? But I got in a fight with this kid and I got suspended for it. Like and none of my friends. I had one friend who got suspended a lot. And he's, as an adult, he's been in and out of prison. He's a seriously bad person. And not a, not a cool bad person. Like he's legitimately bad. He's depraved. But outside of that, outside of him, and he was an exception. Like none of my friends ever got suspended for anything. So it's kind of it was kind of funny getting suspended. But just one of those things where like sometimes those kids are very provocative themselves kids who are in that position of being the outcast sometimes it is just cruelty sometimes somebody does just single out a passive nerdy or alternative kid and be mean to them just for the hell of it maybe that happens more often in small towns i don't know i can only speak from my experience was that a lot of those kids actually kind of made their own bed And from the sound of it, that was Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Well, they got picked on for sure. There's a lot of evidence they got picked on. They were also picking on other people. And and you could say that's the cycle of abuse, but it just... I mean, that's the thing, though, about being a kid is that there's so much hostility. Kids are testing the boundaries of each other. They they have... uh, Even kids from good backgrounds, even kids who have everything going for them... You know, for whatever reason, kids kind of need to trade blows and not everybody can handle it in the same way. And I think it's good when it happens among a group of friends because you have friends, you have some almost like a there's like structure to it. Whereas for a kid who doesn't have friends, you know, it might be feel like the end of the world. 
You know, it's almost like communal bullying, where it's like bullying in a circle of friends works because you get over it and you still have friends. But maybe to some kid who doesn't, it feels entirely different. But it's weird, though, because now we've had decades of this anti-bullying thing. Well, let me just say, too, like speaking of things not being cinematic, like getting in that fight with that kid where like he's we're grappling. He's trying to pull my jacket over my head. I'm kicking him in the stomach. I don't know. I don't know how bad it hurt. Like, I mean, it had to have hurt. You know, I didn't knock the wind out of him or anything, but I mean, he was getting kicked in the stomach with my full leg. I got a few kicks in there, too. But it wasn't cinematic. It was awkward and chaotic. You know, it wasn't a video game. It wasn't it wasn't street fight. It was just this awkward, chaotic entanglement where it's like we're grappling and I'm just kicking. But uh, going back to the bullying thing, what's so interesting, though, is we've now had like at least 20 years, maybe more of getting more progressively more strict about bullying. And bullying has been cited as like a cause of teenage suicide, depression, anxiety, school shootings. It's basically seen as this source. You know, it's seen as like the cause of pretty much everything bad that a teenager can experience. But what are we seeing now? Like after all of this strict anti-bullying, you know, policy, you know, after the strict anti-bullying policy has become normal nationally, and of course it isn't going to stop all bullying, but it seems to have at least made the punishment much more severe. It must have stopped some of it, at least overt bullying, because I mean, this has been a big campaign for a long time. And I hear about some of the things that go on in schools, like the, the sort of things that kids get in trouble for now. And they're clearly cracking down on it in some places. But that said, what are we seeing among kids? You know, we see that teenage depression is through the roof. Kids are have anxiety disorders. There's more school shootings than ever. I don't know what the suicide rate is, but you still hear about kids killing themselves. And so it doesn't seem like these anti-bullying measures have actually done much to stop that. They certainly haven't stopped school shootings. And maybe you can't stop bullying, but I don't think bullying is really the root cause of it either. But I do find it interesting that like all these years of like trying to make a more, um, basically trying to make kids more kind, trying to make the teenage years more livable to the point where we've enacted strict measures against meanness. And there are things that qualify as bullying today that never would have been thought of as out of the ordinary when I was growing up. And then if you want to go back further than that, I mean, there was a time where it wasn't a big deal. Like there was a time where you might not have gotten suspended for getting in a fight. You know, I think about my dad's yearbook, his high school yearbook, where one of his friends was a boxer. And there's a big full size, there's a full page picture of one of my dad's friends and it's, he's in his boxing gear, and there's a box of beer down by his feet. And this is in a high school yearbook. And, you know, a lot of high school gyms used to have boxing rings. So, I mean, it, it was an entirely different environment back then than the one that I grew up in. And then it's, it's very different now, too. And so you can see where, like, in my dad's generation, you know, it seems like, I mean, there was definitely far less, you know, uh, deadly violence in schools 
I don't know about depression and anxiety, but it's like there was a lot more meanness. Boys fought. Boys were allowed to box in school. And so as things have become softer, we're seeing more deadly violence than ever. We're seeing more depression and anxiety than ever. And the sensitivity and the lack of identity, and I've talked enough about that in recent episodes, but just the sheer identity crisis that kids are going through, where it doesn't seem like this push for a softer high school, softer school environment, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily done the kids any favors, because I think they took it too far. It's like, yes, you should always stop cruel bullying. Like if a kid goes to the counselor or goes to the administration of a school and says like, these people are being really mean to me. They are hurting me. They make me not want to be here. They make me want to kill myself. I mean, I think some sort of intervention is necessary. But I think kids need to go through some of that too. And now that we're seeing kids where it's like, they have a very fleeting sense of identity. They don't even know who they are now. They're extremely sensitive to any criticism, even well into adulthood. Many of them are medicated. It's not just that they have depression and anxiety, but they're on antidepressants. They're on anti-anxiety medication. We're still seeing, if not high suicide rates, I mean, kids are certainly still suicidal, And they're more homicidal than seemingly ever. So something about this isn't working. And it's not just guns. Like, I understand the gun argument. I don't think people, even though I don't agree necessarily, I don't think people are stupid for being like, well, maybe guns are the problem. Well, it's it's, it's not the source. But, uh, you know, what we're seeing is not really what you would expect. You know, I don't think it's what they expected. By not allowing kids to be as mean as they used to be, it seems like we're seeing a lot of misery and confusion among youth. You know, I was talking in that Minecraft episodes, one of the Minecraft episodes, how these kids who have gotten famous on Minecraft, it's very esoteric, you know, and like so many things are, like any niche interest is very esoteric, but just how these kids kind of live in their own little esoteric world where there's terminology that applies to Minecraft and internet culture that I don't immediately know, stuff that I would have to look up to know what it even means, how they represent themselves with these avatars and these characters, and they have screen names, which have always been around, but how I noticed in these videos of these Minecraft kids hanging out, they still refer to each other using their screen names. And that actually made me think of Columbine, too, because the Columbine kids, like, they had code names for each other as well. Like, not just the two killers, but their group of friends all had code names, and they would refer to each other as those. So it wasn't just something they used when they were plotting to hurt people. It was something, like, they all used. They all enjoyed that sort of esotericism of having weird little code names. And you can see, too, where someone like Eric Harris, where it's like he was the whole thing that he was like, he was like a Doom modder. He made like mods for the game Doom. So he was in this world of video games. 
at a time where, yeah, a lot of people were playing video games, but not quite that immersively and not in this interactive way. So it's like in that way, it's like he kind of predated, you know, what we're seeing with kids now, where he was heavily online at a time where relatively few people his age were. Like seniors in high school in 1999, yeah, they might have had AOL and they might have popped in and out, but it's like they weren't heavily online like they are now, but he was super online. He was, you know, very involved in this video game culture and, and video game online video game community. He was making his own modifications to these games. Him and his group of friends had these screen names they would use and they would refer to each other as that, even in person. You know, so they they were drawn to the esotericism of what they were doing as well. But on another note, you know, I think the aside from Columbine, the only shooting that I really paid any attention to was that Virginia Tech one. Because the, the guy, you know, I think it was, I think it had the highest body count up until that point. Up until that point, it was the highest body count. And Columbine happened, you know, while the internet was around, it, you know, paying attention to Columbine when it happened, it was like you were reliant on corporate news, the 24-hour news, cable news networks, newspapers, magazines, TV interviews. It wasn't a lot of the information about it really wasn't something you got online. And like, if you even had the internet in 1999, you weren't necessarily reading about the Columbine shooting online. It was something that you got through the traditional methods, the, tr- the traditional media. But by the time the Virginia Tech thing happened, that was when people were starting to get all of their information online. And the guy, you know, the guy who did it, there was nothing particular. I mean, he, he was interesting in his own right just because he was so strange. But it was, you know, social. I don't know that people were on Facebook or anything like that, but it was just it was the very start of social media where people had MySpace accounts. And shortly after that happened, I was reading something and someone linked to this page called My Dead Space. Very awkwardly named, but there was a website called My Dead Space and I saw somebody link to it because they were like, Oh, my dead space. It's a it's a site that links you to MySpace profiles of people who have died. My dead space. Very strange name. But at that time too, you think about everybody who was on MySpace was what like in their teens or early 20s. Now it's just kind of accepted that there's a lot of dead people on social media. There's people of all ages for one. So you have old people who die. But there's so many dang people with social media accounts. There's so many different types of social media accounts that, of course, there's going to be thousands upon thousands of dead people on there. But back then, it was pretty much unheard of for a dead person to have a social media account because the age group was so young and there were so few people with social media accounts. So just statistically, it was unlikely to really come across that. Like, chances are you personally didn't know anybody who was dead and left behind this social media tombstone. But this website, My Dead Space, I heard about it because of Virginia Tech. And they're like, oh, here's links to like all the victims' MySpace pages. And I was like, that's so strange. I have to look. And I didn't look at them all. 
But one of them that I clicked on, it was so weird to me at the time because it was one of the guys who had been killed by the kid at Virginia Tech. And his profile, he was a metal guy. Like he was into old school black metal and death metal. And I, he was either wearing a Sodom shirt. like Because the thing is on MySpace, it would list like what bands someone liked. It would list their interests. And I remember his list of bands was just like, it was like Bathory, Sodom, like 80s black metal, old school death metal, thrash metal, that kind of thing. And I feel like there was either a picture of him in a Sodom shirt or like, because MySpace too, they would play a song on your profile. You could have a song that just played your theme song. And I think he either had a Sodom song or a Sodom shirt. For whatever reason, like this kid, his thing was Sodom. And I remember thinking that was so strange, but it also made sense in some way. Like, here's this guy who's into underground metal, and he gets killed in a massacre, and the guy who killed him is this autistic Korean guy who, it turns out, they said, would listen to the same collective soul song on repeat over and over and over again. Like, his roommate said he only listened to this one collective soul song, whatever the hit was. And here he ends up murdering a guy who's into like underground satanic metal, who's into Sodom, who's into Bathory. But that makes sense too, because it's like there's a reason why these killers aren't usually into that stuff. You know, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, like, yeah, they were into dark music, but what was it? It was like KMFDM, Ramstein, Ramstein, and Nine Inch Nails. You know, they were into dark music, but it was just like this sort of mainstream industrial rock, industrial metal. It wasn't like they were into underground metal. It wasn't like they were into extreme metal or anything. It wasn't like they had de- delved into some niche. It was like everything that they were into was just something that you could find at Sam Goody. And, you know, Miles and I have talked about this before, where it's like, you were, you were way more likely to run into trouble with somebody at like a Pantera concert. Like you're more likely to run into like an ex-convict who will kick your ass or hurt you at a Pantera concert rather than an extreme metal concert or an underground concert. Because some of these things, it's like it takes a passion to be interested in it beyond just like it's, it's not something you just come across. Not that it's that hard to get into that stuff. Like, you could find some of that stuff at Sam Goody, too. But it's just always interesting to me that, you know, it's it's very rarely somebody who is passionate about some niche interest. You know, and, and you see this time and time again with these shootings where it's it's almost never somebody who has a passion for something deeply subversive. It's always very hot-blooded music, or in, in the case of the Virginia Tech guy, it's like just collective soul on repeat. But it makes sense in that way that like a guy who probably enjoyed checking out new underground metal bands or old-school black metal bands, whatever he was into, it makes sense that he would be the victim opposed to the, to the perpetrator. And yeah, there, there are guys from metal bands, there are guys into metal who have done bad things who have hurt people and killed people but it's just still by and large when you're talking about fan bases it's less common to come across that 
I think part of it though is because it's like that kind of consumes you. You know, when you're interested in that stuff, especially at that age, it kind of consumes you. Like when I was in high school, I think there were three people in my school, including me, who were into metal. Like there were more, I mean, there were more kids into metal, but like when it came to death metal, like when I became friends with death metal Tom, he was known as death metal Tom, a very straight laced guy who would just be wearing the most brutal death metal shirts. Like, he's just this guy in jeans with short hair. Just looks like an average Joe, but he's wearing, um, you know, like, Brodekin shirts. And he saw me wearing a shirt and was just like, oh, you're into the same stuff. Like, let's hang out. There was another guy, too, who was into some of that stuff, who was into grind and death metal. But the kids who were the kind of outcasts, like, they were the kids who were just wearing Marilyn Manson shirts. They were the kids who just were into like hot topic at most. Like the kids who had that really, who had that rage and anger and everything. Like the guys that I knew in school who were into underground music didn't have much rage at all. They might have had their own angst. They might have had their own issues and everything. But it's like they didn't have, like you would never in a million years suspect them of being a school shooter. Which is funny because like people can't necessarily make a distinction between that. Like, I have a friend who grew up in the Midwest, and his experiences are very similar to mine. Like, he's talked about how, you know, even growing up in the Midwest, like, it was friends who were mean to each other. Like, he was into alternative stuff, he was into music, but he wasn't bullied by jocks. It was his friends who kind of gave him shit, and he gave his friends shit. But he did say, like, you know, because he was into metal and and punk and stuff at the time, and he would wear black T-shirts, of course. And the day after Columbine, he said he got called to the office, and they were basically like, you're not planning anything, are you? And I knew somebody else who that happened to. I knew a girl, and that happened to her. Actually, two girls. I know two different girls who were kind of into a more of a mall goth thing. They, They didn't go to my school. One of them's a friend that I have here in Olympia. Another one's a friend of mine who lived in the Midwest. And uh, they both got called in. So I know three people who right after Columbine got called into the office and they were like, you, we noticed that you wear a lot of black t-shirts. Uh, you're not planning on doing any of that. It's like they thought that this was some sort of orchestrated, like like all the kids who wore black nationally, you know, tried to, they, they all had a plan to kill a bunch of people or they were worried some sort of copycat thing. But like going back to my male friend, who got called into the office. It's like, he's the last person in the world you would ever expect to have some hot-blooded, violent anger where he would want to kill people at his school. But like the principal knew he wore a black shirt to school every day. And they can't make that distinction. Like they can't make the distinction between a metal shirt and, you know, whatever you know, shit that like a Malgoth is into. Not that a Malgoth should, not that a Malgoth should be profiled either, but still it's like that distinction isn't in their mind. And actually Miles told me a story. It's one of my favorite stories. And I think I've mentioned it on here, but where he had a creative writing class when he was in high school and his teacher read this story where he was trying to sound super relatable to the kids. And the story involved an angsty teen 
And uh, the story described this teen. So the, the, the teacher's reading this piece of creative writing he wrote to the class, and he says, he wore all black, and he hadn't smiled since the last Fish concert. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, in this teacher's mind, like, this teacher imagined that, like, the sort of angsty, brooding goth kid who wears all black is really into fish. And that's the only time that he's happy. Like, P-H-I-S-H, that jam band. It's like that person, that teacher, heard fish somewhere. Like, they heard that people were into fish. And in their mind, there's no distinction between, like, the sort of person who's into fish, which is like hippies. But it's like there's no distinction between the sort of person who's into fish and the sort of person who wears all black and broods. It's like... Just that lack of understanding. And so that shows you where adults are coming from, where it's like parents just don't understand, but it is that sort of idea where it's like, oh, you wear all black. Like, you know, he hasn't smiled since the last Fish concert. Oh, you wear black T-shirts to school. You're not planning on a, a Columbine type thing, are you? It just shows you that such a disconnect there. And not realizing that that itself provokes rage. Like, not realizing that, like, accusing an innocent kid of being a potential mass murderer because they wear black band shirts. Like, like bringing them to the office. Like, that will provoke rage in a person. And there was a, you know, kind of like a, a neo satanic panic too after columbine which all of that played a role in but there were a bunch of news articles and stuff you know the the evangelical christian right was very big at the time and there were a lot of articles and stuff you know i mean because they did that even with the columbine killers where they were like they were inspired by marilyn manson and it turns out they weren't even marilyn manson fans but that distinction couldn't be made like they weren't capable of making that distinction it was like, oh, a certain sort of angsty, rebellious, gothy kid is into Marilyn Manson. These guys must have been into Marilyn Manson. And it's a good example of the sort of urban legend that takes off. Because you heard that everywhere. That was a talking point. It wasn't just published in mainstream news articles, editorials. But people would just say that casually. Like, oh yeah, those guys, they were listening to Marilyn Manson. I mean, I had a guy on my football team, and he was just super into Metallica and Ozzy Osbourne, and he hung out with the goth kids. Like, he hung out in the corner with the goth kids and everything, and he... Another good example, though, of a kid who made his own bed, because he and I would always talk in class because he liked metal, but his entire group of friends hated me because I liked Danzig. And they, they basically stole their entire personality from Beavis and Butthead. Because there's a sort of, there's a real Beavis and Butthead. Like, there's a real kind of kid who existed in the early 90s who Beavis and Butthead was inspired by. And that's what Mike Judge... Because Mike Judge is a very gifted reader of people. I love Mike Judge. And Mike Judge, is, you know, had a great ability to take a real type of person and create the perfect caricature of them 
that's completely ridiculous, but you also recognize like who he's hit, like what kind of character he's getting at the real person behind it. Mike judge is like the opposite of what I'm talking about. When I say, when I talk about these people who can't make a distinction between the different sorts of people, the different sorts of kids, but there was this group of kids and like, we called them the scrubs and they were, they were outcasts. And it was kind of this mix. They were kind of a mix of mall goths and just like kids who wore camo pants and Megadeth shirts. And the kid I'm talking about that I played football with one year, yeah, he would just wear, he was kind of chubby and he wore Megadeth shirts and camo pants. But I remember the football coaches, I overhearing the football coaches talking about him one day and one of them, because one of them was the security guard at the school. And he was like, yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta keep an eye on him. He's one of them. He's one of those Mansonites. And he didn't mean a Charles Mansonite. He meant like a Marilyn Manson fan. And again, this is post Columbine. And I was just like, God, you guys are idiots. Like that kid doesn't even listen to Marilyn Manson. He's obsessed with Metallica and Megadeth and Ozzy Osbourne. That's literally all he listens to all day. He's not, he has no rage against, you know, he's, but he's an antagonist. Like the thing is like what I was going to get at is like that group of kids, it's like the jocks and the popular kids never even looked at them. Like they never even talked to those kids. They didn't make fun of them. They didn't like them, but they didn't, they never interacted with them. But those kids were extremely antagonistic. Like they would try to start shit with me, even though with like a couple of them, like if I had class with them, we would kind of talk about metal and Beavis and Butthead, but they would always try to start shit with me. And like, for, for whatever reason, like, I think because Beavis and Butthead had made fun of Danzig, they decided they hated Danzig, even though that seemed like it should be something they're into. That's what always got me about this group of kids is it seemed like they should be into Danzig because they're into like all this mainstream, good, good mainstream metal, but like speed metal, thrash metal, Black Sabbath, Ozzy, they were into all that stuff, but it's like they thought Danzig was just the worst thing in the world, and they would always try to start shit with me over it. You know, and it was it was kind of good-natured, but it was kind of like, again, they were the kind of kids who kind of, they made their own bed. Like, nobody really rejected them. They were just kind of obnoxious. But hearing those coaches, like, just what those coaches thought about the, that kid. I mean, they might as well have just been like, yeah, he wears all black and he hasn't smiled since the last fish concert. Like when they were like, Oh, he's into Marilyn Manson. Be careful about him. It's like, he he doesn't even listen to Marilyn Manson. He's not filled with homicidal rage. He's just kind of a loser. That's basically what those kids were. It's like, they were just kind of losers. But the impression that adults had, and that was a mainstream view. And that didn't help things. And some kids kind of went full on into it. Like there were some kids even after Columbine who wore trench coats to school. And I can't help but feel like they were kind of trying to send a signal like, don't mess with, dude, don't, don't you ever mess with me. But uh, I don't know. That was never anything I was involved with. None of my friends were like that. And it seemed like the more passionate you were about something niche, like the more work you had to put into like digging, the more of a jewel hunter you were 
it's like the less likely you were to be filled with that angst. Like thinking of myself in high school, high school is when I really started digging into underground music. And as a result, like I had something that captivated me and that I devoted like all of my time and money to. And there was always something else at that time because it wasn't all available. You know, you actually had to put, yeah, we had the internet and everything, but it's like we had to put some amount of work into finding new bands. You were going to concerts, you know, in your free time, like any free money you had pretty much went toward that. So it was a much different situation as far as, um, you know, how I spent my time. And I also wanted to be involved. That's the other side of it, too. It's like I wanted to kind of be connected to it somehow. So it's like. I like to draw. So it's like my creative energy started to go in that direction. But you look at people like the Columbine guys and yeah, it's like he, he was obsessed with a video game. But other than that, like those kids just had a death wish. And that's why, you know, a little while back when I was making fun of the whole bowling for Columbine, Marilyn Manson interview, where it's like, I would have done what nobody else would have done. I would have listened It's like, I don't even think that would have worked. You know, I don't know if it's fate. I don't know exactly what it is. But like when I think about those Columbine kids, I'm just like, if you listen to what those kids were actually saying, they just seem to have a very severe death wish. Like they were weeks away from graduation. And here's the thing too. They had friends. Like they might have been outcasts. They might have been nerds. They certainly weren't accepted by the popular cliques in their school. And the popular kids apparently hated them. But when you actually like look at their story, they had a group of friends. They went to prom with girls. Like they had girls in their lives. So it's like there were so many people I knew who didn't have anything close to that. Like I knew so many kids, like just random nerdy kids in school who had few, if any, friends. Like thinking about that kid I got in the fight with, he seriously, I don't remember him having a single friend ever. Not one friend all through school. Like you never saw him with anybody. I can tell you that no, he never had any chance with any girls. Girls, girls pretended he didn't exist. Nobody was cruel to him, but it's like nobody wanted anything to do with him. And then you look at the Columbine guys and it's like they were going to prom with girls and and not ugly girls either. Like you see like some of the girls that like it would show prom pictures and stuff. And it's like. They were going to prom with girls who were decent looking, probably nerdy girls, probably weird girls, but it's still like they had girls in their friend group. They might not have had a lot of friends, but it's like they had a core group of friends and everything. So it's like that doesn't really fit the bill either that these guys had nobody around them, that they were just totally isolated. And that's why it's so hard to understand that stuff. And maybe you can't. And that's why when I look at those guys, it just seems like it was their fate or something. Like, they both came from, they weren't the product of divorce. Like, both their parents were in their houses. They had siblings, so none of them were only children. They had, they came from middle to middle upper, to upper middle class homes where both the parents were together. And you can say the parents could have done this or should have done this, but it's like, they had all the basics because that's what people always say about these kids who join gangs in Chicago and the ghetto and everything. It's always like they come from single parent households and the mom works three jobs. 
but it's like the Columbine guys, it's like they, you know, they had, their parents were married. They had siblings who turned out fine. They were able to get dates to prom. They had interests. They were very passionate about their interests. They were just obsessed with murder. That's what you see when you, you hear them talk and everything, when, when they made these videos and everything. It's just like they were just obsessed with the idea of killing people. I don't know what the, it's, that's what makes it so difficult. And their big thing too wasn't even necessarily the guns. Like they built all these bombs that anybody could have built. Like anybody could have gotten the supplies to build those bombs. And, you know, most of their bombs didn't work. I don't, I don't remember the exact story, but it's like the big bomb they built didn't go off. And then they just ended up shooting people. But it's, uh, here I am an expert. Now, this stuff's burned into you, though. The mythology is burned into you, even if you weren't particularly interested in it. It was just a weird time for that, where it's like, I mean, I grew up in a household where my mom pretty much had the news on all the time while she was doing things. And you don't realize how much information gets burned into your brain. Like, if the news was covering Columbine 24 hours a day for a month straight... So much information was passed on to you, even just subliminally, even just to your subconscious. It's crazy how that works. But yeah, those guys, it's like they were into bombs and everything. So it's like they were going to find a way to kill a bunch of people one way or another. They were going to find a way to kill themselves. And they had been to counseling. Like one of them was on antidepressants. So it's funny to me how he kind of predates like the normal kid in, in a certain way where it's like he was on antidepressants and he played video games all the time. Now we're in an age where that's the normal kid. He's a normal kid by today's standards. All he does is play video games. He hates society and he's on antidepressants. And why are more and more kids like that? That's the other thing too. Why are more and more kids on antidepressants, on anti-anxiety medication, on SSRIs, suicidal, self-hating. Some of them are murderous. Some of them, because it's, it's not just being introduced to an idea, you know, because people are always like, oh, if you, if you give too much attention to the killers, you're going to get copycats. It's going to you know, pass the ideas on to other people. You know, I don't even know what to say about that. Because it's like, think about all of the people who are exposed to that. Like, think of all the people like me who didn't even try to really seek it out, but ended up finding out all this stuff about the Columbine killers just because that was a time where that was everywhere. The covers of magazines. Like every other magazine and newspaper for a while was some kind of expose with new information on those guys. All these interviews and it's just, it was wild. But very few people were like, that's the thing that I'm getting at here is like very few people were exposed to that and thought, those are the guys I want to be like. Oh, I'm finding out all this information about Columbine. Those are the guys I want to be like. Even people who are upset, even people who are going through a bad time, who are miserable, who are angry, didn't hear about those guys and go, oh, those are going to be my heroes. It's just a certain type of kid feels that way, and they're going to seek that out anyway. 
Like, are you going to get rid of the Wikipedia article? Because you can find out pretty much anything you want to know about them. Like, if you're worried about people reading about these killers and becoming inspired or becoming copycats, it's like you can find all of that out from the most mainstream outlets, especially now with the internet. It's just that a certain sort of person is like, those are the guys I like, which is so foreign to me. The idea of like hearing about people like that and being like, yeah, I think I'm going to be like them. Kind of like those women I'm talking about, how there's this entire, I don't know what to call it, like a, <laughs> a subculture. Like there's this entire kind of subculture of women who get online and just obsess about Columbine to this day. And they, they've memorized like the names of everybody in the yearbook. They go to Littleton. Some of them even have like an infatuation with like one of the boys. Like I'm on team Dylan. I'm on team Eric. Not this, not this Eric. But, uh, you know, that's, how do you explain that? You know, because we know that women won't, um, you know, we know that women will date gang members who have killed people. We know that women will date military veterans who have killed people. Like murder doesn't seem to be as big of a turnoff. I'm not I'm not saying women are attracted to murder, but I'm just saying like somebody having committed a murder doesn't seem to have to be just like an ultimate turnoff for all women. Not that it's a turn on always, but it's interesting to me how that is a phenomenon that happens among a certain group of the population where it's like they're into Richard Ramirez. They're into Scott Peterson. It's not even just serial killers, but it's a guy like Scott Peterson, like killed his wife, his pregnant wife. And he gets tons of love letters. And maybe it's because he looks kind of like a chubby Ben Affleck. I don't know what the story is with Scott Peterson. That's another example where there was a certain point in time, like before everybody was online all the time, where that was on TV nonstop when it happened. I know all kinds of weird little details about the Lacey Peterson, Scott Peterson case, just because it got the Columbine treatment. But women love him. Women write him love letters. They throw themselves at this like chubby Ben Affleck who killed his wife and baby. Pregnant, pregnant wife. You know, I don't know. It doesn't, I don't understand it. I don't know of any similar phenomenon with men. I mean, despite men having this reputation, they'll fuck anything. Oh, guys, guys will fuck anything. Despite all of that talk, it's like, do you hear many stories about like men writing love letters to murderous women in prison? You really don't that I know of. Maybe it exists. Maybe I just haven't come across it. Maybe it's just, maybe there's uh, just so many men who have committed murders. It's more likely. But in the same way that like there's a certain sort of angry young man who's like, oh, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold? Heroes. Oh, I mean, I want to be like them. I mean, there's a certain sort of woman who exists who's like, oh, yeah, these dead teenagers who killed a bunch of people and listened to shitty music. 
I love them. I have a crush on one of them. It's like just bizarre. And I I wonder how much of that is some like product of the culture we're in or if that's something innate if that's speaking to something, you know, innate, but, you know, you're dealing with a dead person who, you know, you're basically dealing with a fictional character. It's, it's become mythology. And it's mythology to me, too, because it, it is hard to think of the reality of this stuff, especially when it's presented the way it is. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can 